Hi, my name is Pat Live and welcome to Love the Music. Today's date is June 1st, 2021. Well, it's after midnight, so that means it's now June 1st, and yes, I'm still working on the podcast. We're coming up to June 2nd and the limited reopening of Ontario. The stay-home mandate will be lifted and folks can begin to hit the links. Oh, and the Leafs lost again. As I continue to post these conversations, I am learning something new every time I listen to one of these artists. They all have stories to tell and experiences to share. For all entertainers, not being able to perform in front of a live audience has not only been financially detrimental, but it's been demoralizing and depressing. Although bands are now booking south of the border and overseas, nothing, not even locally outdoors, is viable here in Canada. Yet. The light at the end of the tunnel still seems to be in the far-off distance. But as the country ramps up its vaccination program, we've all got our fingers crossed for that sometime this summer. Let's hope we see our favorite indie artists out gigging soon. I've known Frank Cerrone for six years, and every one of those years has been a new adventure, particularly the four years I spent photographing his musical theater show, Ones. Here's the Coles Notes version of Frank's lengthy career in music. Gigging in cover bands part-time since 1968, Frank graduated from the U of T with a degree in architecture in 1977. Then the 1978 recession hit. Out of work and writing his own songs, one of them called You're on the Radio, came to the attention of Chum's program director, Warren Cosford. Frank formed the band Zero One, signed a deal with Anthem Records, and recorded one album. The band was nominated for a Juno in 1981 for Best New Group, before disbanding in 1982. Hanover Fist was Frank's second touring act. Produced by David Bowie guitarist Stacey Hayden, the Hanover Fist project was recorded at Pete Townsend's Eel Pie Studio in Surrey, England. The self-titled album was released in 1983 on MCA Records, and the band toured extensively throughout the U.S. However, the scourge of the Washington Wives, led by Tipper Gore, put more than a damper on the heavy metal genre. MCA decided to market a reconfigured album. Renaming it Hungry Eyes, a new radio-friendly song was added, but Gorn Group had already done their damage. Now there's Ones, a continual source of inspiration. The Beatles have become Frank's muse, affecting every aspect of his musical career as both a performer and a songwriter. It was back in 1986 that Frank decided he would someday create the ultimate Beatles music band. In 2014, he did, and in 2016, he presented the first one show. Beginning in a small 300-seat theater, the show has grown to include a 22-piece orchestra performing at the Meridian, formerly Sony Center, in Toronto. A full multimedia production, the entire show is note-perfect, and all the instruments used during the performance are true to their types and their times. Now booking tours across the U.S., Frank's dream of the ultimate tribute to the Beatles and their number one hits has finally come to fruition. Okay, the first one is, I need my glasses, where were, where were you at this time of the year, the last year? 
and, and where are you now, and where were you supposed to be? Last year, we were building the show to... By this point last year, we had played the center and the square in Kitchener, so it would have been our first 2,000-seater, double the size of anything we'd previously played. We were uh, booking into uh, the summer and the fall, and we'd already started selling seats for the Sony Center. So if you sort of take all of that versus where we're at today. Today, I just answer phone calls. I don't do much of anything. What we were looking at was um, I had secured Bush Gardens for uh, March of this year. Um, there was definitely a upward uh, path that we were climbing. We were, um, I was leaving one management and um, putting together marketing to find another management last year. At this point in time, if I were to put it into a, a simple nutshell, as they say, uh, I would say that uh, last year at this time I was building. And this year at this time I'm preserving <laughs> So it's quite a different thing when you're when you're on a track to to build versus when you're on a track to try and make sure that the building doesn't collapse. And so uh, if those are the two market differences, and even though I'm still in touch with agents in the U.S. and my my new management, uh, and we're regularly keeping our feet in the stirrups. Uh, for when things do move forward, um, it's not the same. it's not anything like last year where I was too busy to take phone calls. Now I'm too busy to take phone calls. So, so you're preserving. <laughs> but it's a different busy. <laughs> so you're preserving this year. So how has the preserving? What is the preserving, and how how has that approach changed from what you? Well, were isn't that an interesting question? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that's the segue. <laughs> the segue is what am I doing this year in order to prepare for and preserve the project? Yeah, um, I've seen a couple of things, and as as you earlier mentioned, but it's not on on record here. Um, there's a lot of saturation going on with the internet. Everybody and his brother is putting out something on uh, on uh, social media, uh, some sort of video, some sort of, hey, I'm still here type of message. And, and, and I, I look at it right now, it's not unlike uh, when you make your decision to go see your entertainment during the week. You know, it, it, pre-COVID days, when you had a choice of 50 bars and 50 bands that you could see uh, on that given day. And you, you you know that certain things are associated with a certain uh, quality of presentation, or there's certain people that you know that you would go to see them in spite of where they're playing. These days, it's, it's a matter of trying to figure out how to keep our, our profile up while people are forgetting basically everything about the entertainment business. So 
I personally have been working on video, a much higher quality video than anything we've done in the past. I'm looking at putting together a complete representation of the entire show in high quality and, and 4K definition. Um, I'm looking at that as being uh, at worst case as a marketing tool, at best case as perhaps a, a sales tool. I'm looking at revamping. Uh, what I'm doing is, is I'm, I'm making a lot of lemonade. Okay? I, I, I'm, I'm really looking at the most effective ways that I can spend this time in a way that I could never spend this time before. The last time I had this much time to devote to my project was when I was building it originally. Because then you don't have anything to do other than, hey, let's create something. Well, you know what? I don't like where this is. I can change this. And if it takes an extra week, nobody knows about it. But all of a sudden, when you're in the thick of it and it starts climbing and it takes this trajectory, it takes so much of your time that anything you can do to improve the show is basically a cursory. uh, It's cursory compared to the way you built the show in the first place. So it's a Band-Aid. You know, if you're fixing something, it's a Band-Aid. Uh, it's not a full-on... Uh, it was sometimes what the show really needs is um, a transplant. You know, it needs a new heart or it needs a new leg or it needs a new Sort something. of like going from a patchwork quilt to a yeah. piece? Yeah, or, or uh, in my mind, again, it's... It's all about me looking for, keeping my same philosophy, looking for the best quality I can put into a show, whether that's the people or the music or the way we play the music or the the sound guy or the crew or the photographer. I'm looking for the quality of the show that makes the show uh, more desirable and, and more unique. It doesn't, at least I hope it does, and it seems to have proven that in the past and i don't certainly know where things are going the, so the 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 past we i mentioned what what i was doing a year ago the present uh, i'm looking at what i'm doing a year from now i'm i'm having to move dates that were already in in place the ones that i can i've moved to um the fall and uh, I have backup dates for my fall dates now in the spring. Yeah, is that fall 2020 or fall yeah, 2020? fall 2020, which may fall through. Uh, and I so I have backup dates for those in, in the spring of 2021. Anything out as far as 2022? No, uh, not yet. Um, although there obviously some of the U.S. stuff, which was initially going to be in 2022, is still... It's still on the table, so, but those are, are, those are subject to a lot of fine-tuning. What I'm kind of looking at for um, 2021 is to uh, resurface the show with some really good, uh, high-quality changes to some of the things that I thought might, might need that attention. Um, I certainly want to bring up the quality of the projections. And some of the way, the only ways we can do that in some cases is to reshoot them. So I'll be looking at reshooting 
So it's given you really, what this has done is given you space and time to yeah. reevaluate, readdress, improve the entire show. Now, I'm not getting you to describe or explain the show because, as you know, I already know what yeah. the show is about. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, what I'm doing is a lot of, so uh, what I did in the past was, you know, like I say, is building this castle, and now I'm just uh, looking at what I need to do as far as maintenance, what I need to do as far as preserving, and and then where my next steps are going to be. So a year from now, I'm already looking at uh, securing some dates. Nobody's giving me a commitment because nobody's giving anybody a commitment right now. But I am in the faces of agents in the U.S. and Canada. Just before all of this happened, we were negotiating an eight-day eight tour across Canada that would take us right into B.C., we were looking at uh, working with um, a symphony show in Halifax. Uh, and so we'd already discussed the, gone through the preliminaries of that. And we're, we were on, on the table for discussing an actual date. But again, that, that stopped. We were, let's put it this way, <laughs> the, all of the wonderful things that, that we, where we were going to go are not necessarily the same places that we're going to be using as a starting point next year. So one year from now, I anticipate that I'm going to have to do a lot of legwork to get the presence back up, uh, which I'm not happy about. Nobody's happy about that. Reality is, is um, I, it's hard enough to spark the public's interest when you know when they they have lots of choices and they're not under duress. Suddenly, when the public is under duress, you know the ninety percent of everybody's interest is on is on the news report. What are today's numbers? You know, uh, how safe am I? When can I go back to work? Or when can I go to the can? You know, when can I go to the bank and not have to line up outside? All of these things are are what's principally on people's minds, which is why I'm I'm feeling like. I'm going to be stalling all of my shows till the spring anyway because there won't be enough time to sell tickets you know, come September, October. Yeah, especially being a theater show. Yeah. yeah, you need them months in advance. I work in the performing arts center business and I'm I'm dealing with, you know, uh, uh, my show versus all the other shows that are being you know presented in the theater. So, yeah, keeping... Yeah, we are in the business of getting attention and keeping it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah now are you in touch with publicity and promotional people or i mean how i mean you've had time to work on the inside um but you're still remaining in contact with people on the outside to keep the one show sort of at least a bug in their ear if not front and center yeah i have i have a really good management for that you know wayne thompson is among the best and he's um Again, uh, being the consummate professional, being a really great manager, he's he's on top of of those connections with the people that uh, that need to need to know where we are and what we're doing. We've covered your future plans because we know what you're you're heading for next year. Well, we haven't really covered my future plans. Well, okay. Well, we've so covered. Let's address you specifically your future plans then. Well, we we have yet to take over the world. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got to get to Japan and and Germany and Australia and and uh, 
the Royal Albert Hall, of course, you know, so these are all, my future plans are all there. How do you think all of this is going to affect not just the music business, but the arts going forward? I mean, what impact is COVID going to have from your point of view on the whole arts? Because it's a, it's, it's really a gig economy that's been flattened, but the arts, I mean, it's not just music, it's all entertainment. Well, it's uh, music and any entertainment that requires a congregation uh, is going to change in the immediate future. And I'm sure that some of those changes will uh, become the staples, the axioms of what, what what's going to happen in the far future, further future. Whether that means that everybody's going to be wearing masks at a show from here on in, I doubt it. I think what what will happen though is is that people now have had the ultimate alert as to you know the benefits of washing your hands. People have now had the ultimate alert of knowing that um, maybe it's not a good thing to shake the hand of every stranger out there and then you know have to worry about scratching your eye. Um, the immediate future. Uh, in society is really the immediate future of how it will affect the entertainment business because how people behave at these shows will determine a lot of as to you know what the what the changing face of these shows is going to look like in the immediate future for sure i see masks for sure i don't i don't know why we couldn't have a theater full of people if everybody's wearing a mask uh, I don't know why we couldn't have a theater full of people uh, attending a concert. I think maybe we wouldn't want to have an intermission because that's more uh, time for contact. So people can get up, uh, um, you know, during a show, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be deemed to be rude to get up and, and leave to go to the bathroom. And then, and then if that happens in a sort of a natural way, you won't get these long lineups for the bathroom. You know, here's what we're down to now. Collective bathroom uh, uh, rules. You know, I mean, I, I, I just, I think that there will be a lot of this stuff will be leftovers. Just like nine uh, eleven, we have, we still have leftovers from nine eleven when we go through airport security. And uh, and I wouldn't say that this is any less impact on the world than nine eleven. I mean, maybe not as you know much impact in one localized area of the U.S., but certainly on the world. You know, the, this has had that same kind of impact where people everywhere now, as a human race, you won't be able to go to, to Europe or uh, or an Eastern Bloc country or South America or Japan. You can't really for, travel the four corners of the earth without everybody knowing exactly this new discipline of how to you know, wash your hands <laughs> or retain your distance. Time for our first musical break, and the song that really started it all, You're On My Radio, was recorded as a demo in 1980 with Zero One. In fact, the entire album was a demo, recorded in a four-track studio in Scarborough. Anthem Records was so impressed with the demos, they quickly packaged them up and released them as a complete album. You're On My Radio was Frank's response to repeated criticisms received at A&R meetings that he needed to write something, that was more suitable for radio. A total of five singles were released from the album, 
and in 1981, the band was nominated for a Juno for the Best New Group. to the Pandemic Interviews, Conversations in a Changing Time. The song we've just heard, You're On My Radio, from Zero One's self-titled album, was part of a collection of demos Frank Zeroni calls his unfinished sketches and were never meant to be the final product. However, a total of five singles were released from the album, and the band was nominated for a Juno for Best New Group. You're listening to a conversation I had with Frank in June 2020. What about lesser-known bands, though? I mean, there's a, there's clubs that are closing in Toronto, and not just in Toronto. There's 
I mean, there was a lot of you, I mean, all the festivals are gone. So anybody who would have had an opportunity at a festival to show their stuff, um, no longer. So what do you think it's going to do to the, to the survival of the, let's for arguments, they call it the indie music business. Well, I think anything that's, that's, um, anything that has built a house on ground so shaky that it can fall apart with a year off, you know, that house was going to fall anyway. So the, the reality is that, uh, bars will open again. People will start up venues again. Bands will play again. And it will be under, as I say, the new rules, the new confines of what we, what's been brought to the table now as a result of all of this. But I don't see that anything is just going to stop. I mean, uh, that'd be like saying that COVID killed ambitions. I don't think ambitious people are going to be stopped by anything. What's changed for you now in your approach to music? Or has anything changed in your approach? Like I say, uh, nothing's changed. It's just uh, work has shifted. And I think the people that people that look at this whole thing is saying, well, you know, I, if you only had one course, if your whole life depended on you being uh, at a bar, or, or at a performance venue every every day of every week, um, then you're going to suffer. If you had other things in mind, I mean, for someone like me, I have a show that's constantly growing. So time is one of the best gifts I can get, <laughs> you know, because I can take that time and I can use it to my advantage. I'm actually working harder in this time than I would was working when I initially started the show. Because when I initially wrote the show, I had all the time in the world. It didn't matter to me if it took me an extra year. I didn't want to put it out till it till I thought it was ready. But now I've got this limited amount of time, and I don't know how long before everything returns back to normal, and I'm going to be answering the phone, you know, 24 hours a day. I've got this limited amount of time where I can achieve a lot of the stuff that I couldn't achieve before. I don't have to take everybody's call. I don't have to, um, I don't have another meeting. I, I don't have to fill out contracts or worry about, you know, settlements or P2 work visas or, you know, I don't have anything else to take up my time except getting back to, um, my fundamentals and improving the fundamentals of the show again. So that now I can see the, the show was, as you remember, we started and was, was meant to be presented to three, 300 seats. Yeah. You know, by the time we got to 3,000 seats last year, the amount of work that we had to put into the show uh, as, you know, as these uh, changes to, to help, they were all implemented. And yes, we got through them, but, you know, there weren't done as well as they could have been done you know once you see oh oh you know what that maybe that didn't work <laughs> and i have all this video now uh that i'm reviewing and again it's given me another chance to spend hours and hours reviewing like a coach would review videos of a gameplay and say yeah you know what um this might be better like this this might be better like that 
uh, we live in a world now where we don't have 50 people uh, uh, in an organization to to do something like what I'm doing uh, as a show. I mean, granted the big money out there and the big promoters out there uh, and, and the big, you know, the Mervishes and et cetera, et cetera, the live nations and the Mervishes, they, they all have the money to put in, uh, to get a, a crew of people. But in the, in the indie sense, and I'm, I'm, have to look at my show as an indie show because there's been nobody behind it, but in the indie sense, most of it happens with one or two people wearing a lot of hats and that takes a lot of time it just doesn't mean that you can't do it doesn't mean you can do can't do the same work as 50 but you know just by sheer numbers alone it's going to take you it's going to take you the same number of hours it's just that it's only two people putting in those hours so it means it's going to it's going to the timeline's going to drag on uh versus you know uh, Live Nation throwing fifty people at something and putting out uh, come come from away in 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 no time at all. Yeah. But do you think having a smaller team gives you more flexibility? Well, they always say that you know the that um, the the slimmer co- uh, company isn't like the big brontosaurus. It, mm-hmm. it it can you know slip in between the cracks, yeah. and in some cases that's the case. But when it comes to show development, marketing, uh, you know. You need a bigger team. Thought ideas, projections, uh, advertising, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Um, yeah, you do. You need a you need a bigger team or you need a lot more time. Um, and it's always nice to get people that have experience in things that you don't have experience in to, to guide the way. Now, there hasn't been a lot of time for uh, catching up. And my old analogy, when people used to say, well, how's the show going? I said, well, it's going great in a sense because, but for me, I'm not doing so well. I'm getting run ragged because I used to ride the horse and now the horse is dragging me along. Uh, so I, I've managed to actually, now that the horse has stopped, <laughs> I've managed to dust myself off, check the stirrups, check my boots, check the saddle and see if I can strap myself in for a much rougher ride because I think it's going to be a rougher ride. I mean, in, in in my conclusion to where the future is going to go, it's going to be a lot rougher for everybody. What and and I don't say that there's going to be winners or losers in all of this. Uh, what I what I say is is there's going to be survivors. We, you know, when you live in a in a world of plenty and then you're reduced to having one slice of bread a day, it shows you, you know, the people that are are still in it for that one slice of bread a day are the ones that probably will go on. The ones that were just sort of, you know, they were happy when there was bread and beer being tossed around and it didn't matter if they made any money and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think a lot of those people may resurface eventually, but I don't think they'll be the the front line. So it may be a wider field. I I think that the field is going to be quality improved no matter what. Because, again... Look at all the people that are taking this time, as I'm taking this time to improve my show. Look at all the people that are now taking this time to write new songs. This has never been a better time. And and now, they're actually getting better topics to write about. Because, um, you know, the 60s are happening out there all over again, right? With the protest walks and the movements and stuff. Um, if that isn't seeds for 
for growing some new music. I don't know what is. Again, putting music on on that pedestal in that forefront where it was the you know in the sixties, it was very important as a social message, and it's been reduced to yo ho, you bitch, <laughs> etc. <cetera. laughs> <laughs> you know, and so where's the social message in that? There is none. So you think that's coming back? Well, uh, it, 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 there's never been a better time for it to come back. I'm not saying it will. Again, social conscience is not something that just you know, that drops down on you from above. But the the, the seeds are there. Uh, the ground is fertile for it. Go grow your own. You know, it's a. I think people are going to be ready for message songs after all of this. I think people are going to be ready for um, uh, positive affirmation songs after all of this. Songs of hope. Songs that, uh, again, through music, tell us all the important things that, you know, that uh, will get us through our lives. Because there's a lot of people now that are uh, have lost jobs. There's a lot of people that are going to be in complete hardship. They're lo- they've lost family, you know, uh, as a result of all this, and uh, they need consoling. They need their messages. They need uh, attention. The world uh, music is uh, like acting is 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 heavily invested in. Uh, the, the business of attention. This song was definitely an attention grabber, particularly for Eddie Van Halen, who chose Medal of the Night, the next song we're about to hear, as the lead song for the Universal movie, The Wildlife. Eddie was the musical director for the movie and inadvertently heard the tape while driving a borrowed car. From Frank's Hanover Fist days, Medal of the Night was released in 1984 and was rated the number one British import for two months. Recorded at Eel Pie Studios in Surrey, England, Frank wrote the song about the life that happens after midnight, the rebellious nature of rock and roll, and the challenges of being young.
back to the pandemic interviews, Conversations in a Changing Time. The song we just heard, Medal of the Night, continues to strike a chord with listeners and continually draws in new fans from around the world. It is currently playlisted on rock shows in eight countries, including the U.S., Australia, Britain, and Europe. You are listening to a conversation I had with Frank Zeroni in June 2020, one year ago this month. People are actually still launching records. Julian's just doing The Ridge. I know that the Red Hill Valleys are coming up with some stuff. How do you think they are going to do without being able, over social media, without being able to actually tour or even perform locally the music, the new music, the new albums that they're releasing? And these aren't just like a single. This is like a lot of these people are doing albums. Um, there is... There's the cart, and there's the horse. <laughs> and a lot of people seem to think that the only way to sell albums is touring. It's a component, though. It is a, it, a well, large it's, there's a cart, and there's a horse. Right. So sometimes the, the horse is the touring, and the cart is the record. In the old days, and maybe in the new days to come, the, the record is the horse, and the touring becomes the cart, which is secondary to that. And I'll tell you why I think that's going to happen. It's because, first of all, I've never believed that there's, a, you know, Michael Cole said, there's no such thing as a hit in the can, and I've always believed that. I've never believed that, that you could have hit music that people ignore. When, when there is really good stuff out there, and you know about it, what's the first thing you do? You tell other people about it. The social network of how we share music and how we learn about new music hasn't changed in a 100 years. When you know that something good is out there, you share that with people. And if it doesn't strike you uh, as that good, you generally just don't share it. It doesn't mean that it's not good. Just means that it didn't didn't tickle your your taste, right? So the idea really is is that the most popular music out there is the music that tickled all these tastes and fancies. uh, That that uh, you know there were very less, there were very few restrictions on people's minds as to say that's really good. I got to tell my friends about that, you know, or you should hear this, etc., etc. That has been the singular most effective way for music to become popular. If it's really good, there's no way that it was going to get shoveled under uh, 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 under the rug or whatever. It's just no way. Um, we all live, especially music lovers, we all live for good music. I, I, I can't stress that enough. So if you believe that, then you'll know that the people in these situations now that um, are, are writing new music, and maybe some of them will be really great. Some of them will be okay. Some of them will be mediocre. You know, we, we don't really know, or we, it's not up to us to judge. It's up to the public at large to, to, to judge what's really, really good. So all of these efforts get put out there. The stuff that's going to be really, really good People are going to to notice it. People are going to share it. 
uh, it's going to get out there in a, in a much bigger way uh, and it'll become front runner. And as soon as it does become popular to that level where it, there's a level where people are going to want to see the show, they're going to want to see that band perform these songs. That's the horse. And then the, the tour is the cart. What we've been doing over the last 15, 20 years since the music business has eroded into this, this garage business from this high corporate level is we've been saying, well, you know what? <laughs> I don't have any way of people listening to my music if I don't go out and tour. But that's really the horse following the cart. Right, because essentially you're going to try and build a reputation as a great musician, and your music is secondary to that. So, yeah, I think putting music in the primary position is the right thing to do. Getting when people love it, they're going to want to see it. When people want to see it, your tour is guaranteed. Nobody. I mean, if Michael Cole was right about there's no such thing as a hit in the can, then there's no such thing as as a. a a non-tour for a hit. It just doesn't, nobody's going to let that opportunity slip. Every promoter and his brother is going to be on top of it if it's if it's a hit, you know. Anyway, I think people worry too much about, you know, uh, about these institutions that had no precedent in the first place. Okay, I mean, The problem with, with everybody in this world you know, as I get into the more global stuff, the problem with everybody in this world is, is when we see we see something new come along, and we think it's well, that's a fabulous idea, and everybody latches onto it, and then suddenly everybody wants that to be the new norm, because it's working. And so, two years from now, when that idea don't no longer fits, you know, the suit no longer fits that aging man, you know, you have to get a new suit. But people don't want to do that. They don't want to leave something behind that's been a success. Oh, God, it's been a success. But they forget that the two years earlier or six months earlier, that didn't even exist. So we live in a world of things that change and the things that uh, get attention change. Certainly the ways of getting attention have changed. But also the content that, that gets you that attention has changed over over the last decades. So we have to be um, the creative people that we are in more than just the music. We have to be the creative people that we are in how we get our music out to people. I know that there are ways of doing it. I know that sometimes it involves money. Sometimes it involves influence. Most times it involves cooperation. Because... Again, just sort of using those axioms of saying no such thing as a hit in the can, no such thing as a hit without a tour. There is no such thing as a, a, as a world without music. That's correct. Right. So everybody is going. Everybody is is going to, you know. They're going to get taxed out over these this year of listening to songs that are thirty years old. You know, and I know I'm sure they'll listen to it, uh, you know, for as long as they live, as I will. I'm listening to songs from 50 years ago, and um, they're still fresh to me. But, but there has to be creators of the new realm that represent the people uh, and the people's thoughts today. Um, I think mu- 
songwriters and musicians have to realize that their role is is not necessarily ever going to be a weekly paycheck or ever really come to a great fortune. People like us, I guess we, we have to be happy with whatever we can we can get out of music. And then usually that's fulfillment. It's not so much the money. It's the music. It's the fulfillment of the music, yeah. yeah. You've just listened to a conversation I had with musician, producer, singer, and songwriter Frank Zeroni in June 2020. Hanging out in my kitchen with a large pot of coffee, the interview came about rather spontaneously. I have to say, working with Frank and the wonderful Ones team he put together has been one of the biggest highlights of my photography career. I've learned much, met some incredible people, and have a lifetime of wonderful memories. Through countless pots of coffee and hours of conversation with Frank, I'm still learning. Many thanks to Eddie and Quincy Bullen and Paul DeLong for writing and performing the theme music for the show. And to those of you tuned in, thank you for taking the time to listen, inviting us into your cars, offices, and homes. If you'd like to continue listening to what these musicians have to say, follow me on Podbean or any one of the platforms you're using, and you'll be notified automatically when the next conversation is published. I am Pat Blythe, and you're listening to Love the Music. Have a great day and a wonderful evening.